Yeah, good morning, church. It is great being with you today here in Vicville. I want to give a welcome out to our church family in Apple Valley and Hesperia. We're glad you're with us today. Uh, as we continue in this series, we have been in these New Testament letters. And when you read the New Testament, you'll immediately recognize that Jesus meant for our life as believers to take place in community with one another, our brothers and sisters. And uh, so many of us want to try that Lone Ranger Christianity, but Jesus said he was going to build his church, and his church are a group of people that are both committed to him and to each other. And so throughout the Bible, it only makes sense that if he is building his church, he's going to tell us how to relate to one another. And that is the series we're in. We started out with the fact that we should love one another. Then we talked about bearing one another's burdens. And then last week, we talked about praying for one another. And I don't know about you, but sometimes these commands that we have in Scripture are challenging. They're difficult. They're, they're difficult to pull off. But Jesus Christ challenges us with these one another's because he knows how we relate to each other as believers is going to impact how we relate to him and how we reflect him to the world around us. And so today we're going to jump into our next one another, which is to encourage one another and it's right there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. And the apostle Paul says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now, we're going to unpack that thoroughly today in this passage. But let me first start by talking about the encouragement as it's defined in Scripture and then how God uses encouragement in our lives. See, when you read your Bibles and you read through it and all, anywhere you see in the Bible, that word that's translated encourage is one of many potential words in Hebrew and in Greek, which was, was the original writing of Scripture. And when you begin to look at all of those words in the Bible, basically there's four prominent expressions of encouragement that we find. And you can write these down in your notes, write in those bullet points. The first is there's an idea of comfort behind that word of encouragement that you comfort someone. You also could cheer someone on. You cheer on someone as an aspect of encouragement. Challenge, you challenge things in, in encouraging. And then finally, you can counsel in your encouragement. All four of those are woven into the nature of encouragement. But the great challenge is figuring out when to use which aspect of encouragement in someone's life. Rene Lenek, inventor of the stethoscope, once said, listen to your patients, they are telling you how to heal them. And I love that imagery because the same sort of reality is true in our relational world. When we have our, our friends and family, it's our job as believers to, in a sense, put our stethoscope on their spiritual heart and listen to what's happening inside of them. To understand what's making them tick, where do they need encouragement, and then for us to step into that to offer the right encouragement at the right time. And it's important because so often we just forget that not every encouragement is fitting for every situation. I don't know if you remember those times in school where you have those matching things. You have a word on the side and you're supposed to match it to the best answer. You draw a line to the best answer on the right. Anyone old enough to do that? Thank you, I'm making sure I wasn't alone in the room. Because now everything's done on, on the Chromebooks and all that kind of stuff. But I remember doing that. And this is the sort of process we're supposed to be doing in our walk with our friends and our family in the faith. 
to figure out which encouragement goes to the person in the situation they're in. So for instance, assume that on your page there, someone is wounded, they're grieving, they're hurting over some issue of life. I'll let you know they may not benefit from your counsel, even if your advice is wise. For another hand, if someone is wayward in their faith and you say, I'm gonna cheer them on, it is actually likely counterproductive of what God is trying to do in them. That when they're walking away with God, you should not probably say, keep going. In fact, in the Bible, when someone is wayward or rebellious toward God, time and time again, people will come and speak into their ears and say, keep going, keep going. And all it does is drive them further from Christ and it hardens their heart. We have to encourage each other the right way at the right time for the right reasons. So if you wanna pass your quiz today, you can put these lines directing the encouragement to the right answer because we're called to comfort the wounded. We're called to cheer on the weak to challenge the wayward and then potentially counsel the wandering. Now within the church context, this is requiring you and me to do a few things. First, we have to know what's happening in someone's life. We then next have to be wise enough to know what they need to be able to pick the right encouragement and then be intentional enough to actually encourage them. And that is a quick overview of what biblical encouragement really is all about. It's comforting, it's cheering on, it's challenging, and then it's counseling as necessary. And I'm guessing as you look at that list of C words in your notes, that you might be excelling in one or more of those areas in your life right now with your friends, your family, and maybe even within the church context. And if that's where you're at, I just wanna encourage you, great job, keep it up. I know I try hard to be encouraging as well. And those four C's, I think I do a decent job of generally putting those into the world around me. But as I was studying God's word this week, it it was fascinating to me how often the concept of encouragement revolves around one singular primary recurring theme in scripture. And that theme is the promised presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. There's many ways we encourage people, but in scripture, the primary context of encouragement is rooted in this best practice of reminding ourselves of this promise of Jesus Christ. And that takes us back to the verse we started with today. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to spend the rest of our morning in this passage. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. When you see that, therefore, you've been in our church perhaps long enough to know that it is there because it's pointing back to something the Apostle Paul said earlier, and it's also looking forward to what's coming next. This verse 11 is a hinge verse that goes up and it goes back. Because what's happening in this church in Thessalonica, by the way, Thessalonica is 
uh, still a city in Greece. It's probably, I think it's the second most populous city in that nation. It's still there. So this isn't a, a make-believe city. This is an actual town he's writing to. And these people didn't understand the return of Christ. Some of them thought that Jesus had already been returned. They had been taught that. Others knew that Jesus hadn't come back yet, but they were concerned because of what happens to believers who already died before Jesus comes back. They're worried that somehow those who had died, their family, their friends, were going to miss out on all the amazing, glorious events of his second coming, and they're just confused and they're stressed out. And needed, they needed encouragement. And what Paul does, I think it's beautiful, is he takes these four biblical concepts of encouragement and he brings them to bear on their own hurt in very unique ways. The first thing he wants to do is to comfort them. And we should comfort one another as well with the hope of Jesus' return. He provides comfort in the area of Christ's return. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 3. Now, brothers and sisters, now believers, now Christians, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now you read those words initially and you might think those are not really great news. Well, for the world it's not, but for believers it is amazing news. Because back then, just like it is now, the people of Thessalonica faced some situations in their society, in their culture, that were really tough on them. That society was breaking down. It had messed up priorities that were being championed by societal powers that were focusing on human achievement and self-determination. You see that in the words there in the text. The people of the city were shouting, peace and safety, everything's fine. There's no God you need to worry about. There is no judgment coming. You don't have anything to worry about. We can solve the problems ourselves. And as the community and the society was chanting that to the people, the Christians were being negatively impacted by those words because they were probably believing them. And we live in a very similar society. And you can start believing everything you read in those headlines or you can start clicking on all those items and those stories and start thinking, yeah, maybe that's true. And Paul says to them, like he would say to us, we should comfort one another with the hope that this life is not defined by what is gonna happen next. In fact, what next is what defines this life. And that word there in that first verse, second verse, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is coming, the day of Christ's triumphant return. It is coming. And when that day comes, believers don't have to fear what others might, and that be the destruction that will take place. And that day, that day is one that is going to be utterly amazing. I love how Martin Luther put it. He said this, there are only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. You see, he had the right perspective. 
because that day is coming. This past week, I was at home working and uh, through my refrigerator and pantry. Anyone clean out the expired foods? And you go through there and you start tossing things out. And you go, you know, this is, oh, that's from 2021. That might be okay. You know, you got things from the Obama administration. You're like, what in the world? It's just like, I got to get rid of this stuff. And it's amazing how some items can last seemingly a long time and other lasts only a short amount of time. But the expiration dates on your food or on your, on your drinks in your refrigerator, or whatever, they're designed to help you to They don't last forever. We would say there's a shelf life on those things in your home. And church, I want you to be encouraged. There's an expiration date on sin, on sorrow, on cancer, on pain, on loss. There's going to be a point in time that those things will be tossed out like spoiled food by our master and they will be no more. See, that day is coming and your life and my life will be something altogether, altogether different. We won't even fully fathom until that day arrives. It's going to be a day when you will not have sin or temptation in your life. Imagine that day. It's going to be a day when you're going to be free from doubt and unbelief because you and I are actually going to see Jesus face to face. Can you? That's going to be amazing to me. There's a day when you realize that all of the sacrifices that you gave right now to live for Jesus Christ in your world were worth it. There's a day coming that will have unending joy and a love that never fails. That is the day that is coming. And if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, that day helps every day on this side of eternity make sense. And so Paul is challenging those Thessalonians and that word echoes to our rooms today. Encourage and comfort one another with the words that Jesus Christ is coming and that day is certain. And if we belong to that day, Paul goes on in the text here and reminds us that we need to belong to the light. Look at verse four. But you, brothers and sisters, this is in contrast to those that are gonna face the judgment. He says, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Night and darkness here are figurative ways to speak about one's condition. Night speaks about our general alienation from God and that idea of darkness is to our place in the realm of sin. Night is positional, darkness is practical, but neither one is designed for a believer. Instead, we're to be children of the light and children of the day. How do you encourage one with, someone with this? Well, basically, you have to cheer on one another to remember who you are in Christ. We cheer on other believers to remind them of who they actually are in Jesus. I don't know about you, but at times the world's pretty dark and I can feel fairly lost because it seems like the darkness is creeping in more and more. And we need believers. We need you as followers of Christ to remind believers that they belong to the light. Remember what Jesus said when he was walking this earth, he says, I am the light 
of the world. If you follow him, you won't walk in darkness. That is who he is. So as his disciples, we are now in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are now in the light and we are now made like Jesus to stand out in the darkness. When he came the first time, he came to the world and he says, I'm a light. I am drawing everyone to me because this light is so brilliant. Our job is to reflect Jesus to our world. Not that they are drawn to us, but that we then can point them to our Savior and Lord. Assuming tomorrow you may go back to work in some capacity, whatever your roles at home or abroad, why do you work and why do you have integrity in your workplace? Why do you work in such a way to honor God? It's because you're in the light. Why do you raise your kids to love God and to love others? It's because you are in the light. Why do you serve in ministry, whether it's in the church or in the community? It's because you're in the light. See, that's who you are. And knowing who you are motivates you to be who you should be. Knowing who you are motivates you to be who you should be because even though that's who we are, we don't always act like that. And it's so easy to throw shade at other believers. But when we do that, recognizing we're just throwing darkness. Do you get that idea? When you throw shade at someone and you kind of challenge them on something like that, you're throwing darkness into their life and we are to be people of the light. It just doesn't make sense. As believers, we should commit to cheering on one another, to live in the light, to stay in the light, And then especially point out to them when their light is shining the brightest. Paul's challenge is cheer people on because they are needing that encouragement. If you have me going through Rooted right now, you will soon experience this moment of affirmation over your life. And you're gonna have someone in the room or many people perhaps tell you something they have valued in you or your story or something that has happened in your life. You have encouraged them and they're gonna let you know that. And if you're like me, sometimes gaining or receiving, I should say, the encouragement of others can be a little awkward because we're not used to sometimes receiving that kind of praise. But that is at the heartbeat of what we are as believers to believers, doing our one another's. One of the terms I love using in my own life is I want to catch people doing something amazing for Christ. Because I want to be looking to say, I can't believe what you're doing. That is so cool what you're doing for Jesus. To celebrate someone looking more like Christ because their heart is being changed. It's that kind of bond that we have when we begin to look and to share and to communicate our love and appreciation for others in that way that bonds us together. The Bible says that's the heart of fellowship. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, talking of Christ, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Man, that idea of just looking for ways to bless and cheer on our brothers and sisters in Christ is at the root of encouragement. So stop throwing shade and start looking for those things where you see the work of Jesus moving powerfully in them. The third encouragement Paul gives in this passage is the challenge to one another to stay alert. First, it is comfort 
Second is to cheer on, and now it's a challenge to stay alert. If you have your Bibles open, I'm going to start reading in verses 6 and 7 as we continue through this passage. So then, verse 6, and here's that challenge, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. It's an interesting passage, we'll break it down in a minute here, but Paul's general challenge is to wake up and sober up. Because people who don't actively follow Jesus Christ are often viewed in scripture as being asleep. They are spiritually lazy and they're simply going through the motions without any sort of purpose or passion in life. And that's why he says here, it's like, Paul says they're in this sleep and sleep happens at night. Paul is reaching back to that concept that we are people of the day. We are people of the light. And so when you are spiritually lazy, Paul's like, you got to be challenged on that because you're living lazy, though you should be living alive. You should be living your identity as people of the light. We have to be awake. But then notice it's not just the fact that we're awake, but that we also are sober. That, that word here in the Greek just means self-controlled, engaged, rational, Paul is not talking about literal sobriety here, although that's super beneficial to, mean, to live a meaningful life. But he's using that word picture here of a drunk person to illustrate his point. If you've been around drunk people, you know what I'm talking about. And the word I think Paul would say is, you need to be as Christians clear-headed. Drunk people are impaired and impeded in their ability to respond to life circumstances appropriately and effectively. Their minds, if you've seen them, are cloudy and foggy. They just aren't picking up on things. So that when life happens to them, they respond in ways that don't please God. And Paul is saying here, you're going to have things happen to you in this world that are going to be challenging. And you need to be clear-headed. You need to be awake so that you have the clarity to respond in a way that honors God. Over the years, I've told you that our, our family grew up doing road trips, not the one I grew up in, but like the family I've kind of led. And um, we take trips across the country. Um, basically, because I'm super cheap, we would travel at night. Anyone like that? We'd leave like at seven at night, get off work, come home, pack up, and you're driving through the night somewhere. And on those trips, if you have ever done that, you know exactly what it says to come next because you were start nodding off, right? And you start slapping yourself in the face, I used to not be able to use the radio because they had the radio filled the whole car. You know, now you got heavy, oh, that's great. Uh, windows go down. You eat, or you start eating food that is terribly bad for you. But you're just like, there's licorice, there's pop. You're just like, oh my goodness, this is making me sicker. But you're just trying to stay awake. But when it got really bad on these trips, I would do one thing that would solve my problem. I would wake up my wife next to me, Wendy, and I, hey, hey, babe, I am really fighting it right now. And it was her job to talk to me, to keep me focused on the road and in tune with my surroundings. And so we would have these conversations throughout the morning if I was struggling. And she would actually ask two things regularly of me. As I'm driving down the road, she'd ask me, are you still awake? Are you doing okay? And like, I'm like, well, if I'm not awake, we should have died by now. So yeah, I'm doing fine. <laughs> That's what I feel like saying. 
But it's true. I mean, I remember one time about four o'clock in the morning in South Dakota, her doing that to me saved my life, I think, or our lives. I left from Spokane, Washington, going to Mount Rushmore on one night through Montana. What a right. There's so much to see out there at midnight. Um, There is nothing to see. And I'm driving along the road and she said, are you awake? Are you doing okay? And I wasn't awake and I wasn't doing okay. Church, when the situation calls for it, with great humility and a loving heart, you might have to say to your believing friends, are you awake? Are you doing okay? And that seems hard to say to people at times, but trust me, that is one of the most encouraging things you can do in your life with Christ, with other one another believers. Are you awake? Are you doing okay? Because they might be at that moment where they're ready to have a significant accident in their life, where something in their life is about to go wrong because they're not paying attention to what God has for them. And you also, by the way, have to be ready to receive that encouragement yourself. I love how Paul, in his words here, he said, let us not be like others. Let us be awake and sober. If you think of all the spiritual accomplishments that Paul had achieved in his life, this guy did more for Christ than maybe anyone else in the New Testament era, and he admits he too needed to be Encouraged for someone to call alongside of Paul and say, Paul, are you still awake? Are you still okay? Church, we all can fall asleep from time to time. We can stagger around life like a drunk person, unable to faithfully serve Christ. And so I encourage you to take inventory of your soul because I think there's only three categories you land in. Either you're awake, you're asleep, or you're nodding off. And each one of them have different consequences. Sadly, many Christians today, I think, function like spiritual narcoleptics. We just are walking along and we just nod off. And we forget what we're supposed to be doing. We get sleepy in our walk with God when we should be awake and focused on kingdom matters. And I say this, not at you, but to you and me, because this is my concern as well. I want to be awake. I want to be sober in such a degree that God could actually use me in life. And there's times where I'm nodding off, where I am drifting off. And so if it's happening to me, I'm guessing it's happening to many of you. Keep walking toward Christ with alertness and a clear-headedness. And the reason I bring this up is not because it's just something that's a high horse I want to talk about. Jesus was passionate about this same reality. Look on the screen as I read Mark 13, 32. Jesus said this, but about that day, that same day we've been talking about, the day of his return, that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. 
And this is the last words that Jesus says. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Jesus expects you and me as believers to watch. I wanted you to write that down so it got into your head. This is something that is so vital for our lives. To be alert and to be watching for opportunities to bless and reach out to others. To watch and be alert of the pitfalls and the dangers that come when we try to live in this world for Jesus Christ. And what is so often forgotten is that we should be watching intently for his return. That parable haunts me. Because so often the gravitational pull of this world pulls me down and my mind and my attention are on the now. You got the kids, you've got the cars, you've got the money, then you've got no money. You know what I'm talking about. We have all of these things going on in life and our attention is here in this moment. And we have to take care of this. But it's so easy to stop watching and listening to Jesus and looking for him and his returning. If Jesus were coming back today, I don't want him to look at me in the eye and say, Kurt, you are sleeping a lot. That would make me grieve. How about you? Hebrews 9 says this, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Our job is to be watching and waiting for him, looking for his glorious return. And Paul would say we need to encourage one another with these words. Challenge one another as it's necessary because if you have friends or family who are sleeping or nodding off, they need to wake up. They need to sober up because their God's coming. The last encouragement Paul has for us is that we should counsel one another to prepare for conflict. The believer needs to be encouraged not just to be watchful but also be prepared to fight back against the attacks of our enemy. While you are waiting and watching for the return of Christ, you and I are supposed to be on our toes because we have a job to do in the now. But we have to be on guard because we're living in that broken down world that I talked about earlier. If you have your Bibles, look over in verse eight through 10. But since we belong to the day, there it is again, let us be sober, he's reinforcing that. And now here's the counsel, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, may we live to him, with him. And that is the encouragement. He's advising them how to stay safe in this world from Satan's attacks all the while while staying alert. And he tells us to put on this protective gear. And he, and excuse me, in Ephesians 6, he kind of outlines this full armor of God. And here it's interesting. He only brings up these two pieces, and they're actually both defensive gear in conflict. The first is the breastplate of love and of faith. I didn't really understand when I was a kid, especially what a breastplate is. Just think of a Kevlar vest. 
You put it over your head, it's got a top, a front, and it's got a back. It protects your torso. It's specifically designed to protect your heart because your heart is what protects you in a conflict. It's what keeps your heart moving and beating and living. In a very similar way, we put on this, this Kevlar vest of faith and love. It is two-sided, faith on the front, love on the back. And these virtues always go together because if you believe in God, which is the essence of faith, you have to have love for others and him. Put that on, faith and love. And then he adds in there that we have to put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. This kind of makes sense. A helmet would protect a soldier's head. And I believe even for the Christian, when we put on this piece of that armor, it protects our thoughts. It protects us from fear. It protects us from doubt. Hope is that thing that pulls our mind together to make sure we are on track with God. And it's no, no surprise that in verse nine, when he talks about the issue of hope, he goes right into, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not destined to wrath. That is our hope. That's why we can eagerly await for his coming because when he comes, we're not thinking he's gonna bring judgment to us in Christ. He is gonna bring us life and eternal life. And so we wait with anticipation that his coming is gonna be something we will love. That is the essence of hope. And hope is perhaps the most powerful way you'll ever point others to Jesus Christ. The measure of the hope that you have will determine the measure of your impact in your world. I fully believe that. But it isn't always there in our lives. I appreciate John Piper's words when he said this, why don't people ask us about our hope? The answer is probably that we look as if we hope in the same things they do. Our lives don't look like they're on Calvary Road, stripped down for sacrificial love, serving others with the sweet assurance that we don't need to be rewarded in this life. End of quote. That is a, kind of a, a difficult word to hear from Piper, but I think it's true. I think our hope at times in this world looks just like everyone else around us, and we hope in our retirement account, we hope in our doctor visit, we hope in the diet that we're eating, and we're getting bound up into the now. Hope isn't blind optimism or wishful thinking. Our hope in Christ is rooted both in the past, the present, and the future. In the past, our hope is rooted in the fact that we have been forgiven and, and given the grace of Jesus Christ to pay for the penalty of our sin. In the present, our hope is that because of the death of Christ, we have the power over sin. It no longer has to control you and me. And in the future, our hope is that that salvation, that promise of God, he is coming back for us. And when he comes back for us, he's gonna complete in us what he started. That is hope built on reality. How can you be encouraging one another with that kind of hope today? The only way is you've gotta know the people in your life. Hebrews 10 says this, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting as is the habit of some, or habit of doing, 
but encouraging one another. There it is again. And all the more as you see the day approaching. There's that capital D day again. This is that day of his return. In light of that day coming, our job is to encourage one another day after day after day on this side of eternity. The Thessalonians, when you read it in here, they're eager to figure out what the exact day of Jesus coming. Man, it'd be so cool to know that. And they were so driven. I want to know the day. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? You're not going to know the day. It's going to come like a thief in the night. I don't know when it's coming, but I'm confident that day is coming. And Jesus is going to return for those that are watching and looking for him. But that reality should shape how you live now. A guy I really respect, Warren Wiersbe, said this. There's a difference between being ready to go to heaven and being ready to meet the Lord. I hope you catch the difference there. Because if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, you should have confidence that your eternity is secure. You are ready for heaven But there is something different that comes into the world when you begin to look and say, am I ready to see my Savior, my Master, face to face? Have I lived this life in such an honoring way that I could say, God, I gave everything I had to the cause of Christ and to your kingdom? Because that is what he's calling us to do. Living faithfully in the now. Looking intently for his return in the future. I read a story of a Christian care center that cared for individuals, children with developmental disabilities. Many of these children had placed their faith in Christ. They had grown to love Jesus and they were taught that Jesus was going to do the same thing he's gonna do for us. He's gonna come back and he's gonna take them home where they'll be whole and healed in his presence. When someone asked that center's director, what's some of the biggest significant problems you have around this center? He just simply said, our biggest problem is dirty windows. Seems like an odd thing to say for a center with a custodial issue, but he says, no, that's not the point. He says, these children regularly go to the windows and put their fingerprints on the windows and put their faces looking up to heaven as if Jesus Christ is coming back today. Now, you may think those kids were too limited in their understanding that they don't understand the likelihood of Jesus not coming back. Look how long it's been. I mean, that's a, I know it's a promise, but it probably isn't going to happen. You may be thinking they were just naive and simplistic in their viewpoints. You know what I think? Those children took Jesus at his word when often I don't. I think their faith believes a promise that you and I often forget. And when Jesus comes back and those kids' faces are plastered to the window looking to see if he's coming, I know what his response to them will be. You kept my promise. You were watching. You were looking for me. Church, the day is approaching. I don't know how close that day is, but Jesus expects you and I to be watching intently for his return. Until that day comes, 
And Jesus is expecting that we are encouraging one another through comfort, by cheering people on, and by challenging them as necessary. It is gonna be worth the wait, folks. When that sky splits open and Jesus Christ, our Savior, returns, I want you to be ready. Let's pray. If you're in any of our rooms this morning and you have never made the decision to give your whole life over to Jesus, there's two realities. The one is that your future is grim and dark because the judgment is coming. But the good news is that even this day, you could turn your life over to Jesus Christ, be in him and in the light, and therefore secure eternity with him in heaven. If you would like that today, I'd encourage you just to talk to God. That's what prayer is, it's just talking to God and to tell him three things. First, admit that you have sinned and that you have walked away and you've done it your own way. It's saying, God, I know I should have been following you, but I didn't really want to give my life to you. I wanted to do it myself. I admit that it was wrong. It's believing B, that Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life. He died a sinless death. His death paid the penalty for all of your sins and then he was resurrected on the third day, guaranteeing you and I life. It's believing that. And then finally, it's choosing that C. Choosing to say, Jesus, would you come into my life? Would you take over who I am? I have tried it on my own. I have been a wreck. And I need a savior. So I give you my life. Save me. If you make that decision today, the Bible says that you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And that's the best decision you could ever make. For the rest of us as believers, God, forgive us where we have fallen asleep. Forgive us where we are so focused and tied to this world that we don't keep looking for you. May you, God, through your spirit, empower us to be encouragers to our world, to come alongside our one another's with this good news that we are children of the light and in this world, though dark, we can be a difference maker. And may you, God, use our lives as we walk with Jesus in the light to draw other people to our Savior who is forever to be praised and who is the one we are looking for passionately to return. Until that day, God, we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we give you our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give it up for Pastor Kurt. <laughs>